Hello and welcome to The Snob and the Scent Presents. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm your co-host, Michael. And each week we're going to do a double feature of uh, highbrow entertainment and lowbrow entertainment and see if we can find some connecting themes between the two. But before we get into that, uh, Michael, what have you been watching this week? Uh, so I like to watch a lot of uh, Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Um, the various series, usually to go to sleep. Uh, it's real quality entertainment that soothes the spirit, including many of the movies. Huge fan. Are you a fan of the live action movie from 2002? Uh, there's three live action movies. I'm a fan of both of them. Both of the first two. What? That's that's a confusing ass way to say it. <laughs> that is. There a are three live action movie. I'm a fan of the two. <laughs> or no, you said I'm a fan of both, and I was like, hold on. You're right. That is a confusing way to say it. I'm a fan I'm of a thrice. Fan of, I'm a. <laughs> I'm a fan of the two with the original cast, and then there's a third one that's much more recent that has a bunch of different actors and a really weirdly animated. Scooby-Doo that's kind of like in that uncanny valley. Like a CGI, like a Sonic the Hedgehog Scooby-Doo? Yeah, like it, it, it's gross, and I don't like it one bit. That's upsetting. I well, haven't watched it. I just don't like it for aesthetical reasons. Well, we might have some connective tissue there from the 2002 Scooby-Doo live-action film as uh, our star from Bad Boy Bubby, Nicholas Hope, plays Old Man Smithers in that film. I don't know if you recall Old Man Smithers. I don't, but... How did you know that already? Uh... I I got notes. Did I introduce the two films we're doing this week? Or did I just say the name of the podcast and ask you about Scooby-Doo? I didn't even fucking ask you about Scooby-Doo, bro. You just volunteered that. You you introduced the podcast, and then you asked me what I'd been watching. And the only thing I've really watched after work this week has been Scooby-Doo. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. I've been playing Mad Max a bit. Yeah, you tell me about that. I've been playing a lot of 2K lately, so I haven't been watching as much. Oh, so... Before I get into what I watched this past week, besides our two double features, I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. Uh, first off, we have Bad Boy Bubby from 1993. It's an Australian film directed by Rolf D. Heer. And after that, we have Frank from 2014, directed by Lenny Abramson. So this past week, uh, I finished the Dahmer series. Have you watched that on Netflix? So I've seen several episodes um, not to spoil it for anybody, I won't get too far into it, but it's getting pretty exciting. You're going to spoil a fucking true crime thing that happened 30 years ago that's been widely covered? You know, just because you're aware of what happened 30 years ago doesn't mean that everyone does. Some people might be approaching this series with a fresh set of eyes. And I don't want to ruin it for them. Oh, okay. You know, I tend to call people like that spoiler babies. And uh, I really have a hard time suffering spoiler babies. Well, suffer me, because I'm a spoiler baby. (laughs) So I watched the new Dahmer series. I really enjoyed it. It had a very lonely feeling to it. I think more than... I kept hearing about the gore in it being disturbing, and it might just be my palate. It didn't really hit me that way. It just seemed like an overall sad, sad show. But I like it. I like being sad. I, I haven't found anything I've seen so far to be overly gory. Uh, the subject matter itself invites uh, disgust, um, invites you to reject what he's doing. But at the same time, I agree with the assessment. It's a sad move. It's a sad series. It's lonely. It explores his difficulties in life that don't ex- that don't excuse what he's done. But it, 
it helps kind of explain some of his weird nuanced behaviors i think fairly accurately i don't think it romanticizes any part of it in any way but it is a fairly faithful rendition as far as as what i know yeah and i think a lot of that sympathy comes from uh the lead and that evan peters kid he's really good at just being a pitiful pitiful boy a sad pitiful boy speaking of boys we do know a thing about some bad boys oh some some bad boy bubbies some bad boy bubbies. Are you ready to get into bad boy bubbies? Because I was about to talk about the new season of Cobra Kai as well. I have not seen the new season of Cobra Kai. In fact, I haven't seen the previous season of Cobra Kai either. I'm very disappointing in that regard. Had you seen up to like season three or have you not seen it at all? I think I've seen through season three. Well, to tell you the truth about the newest season, I kind of just like sleepwalked through it. It's it's getting that Stranger Things thing where it hits the exact same plot beats at the exact same like marks each season with slightly different circumstances. Uh, that sounds probably like the staple for a Netflix series. <clears throat> In my experience, Sabrina was much the same way of the same repetitive. Here's your, your climax and your conflict. It gets resolved in a very anticipated way. It's very predictable format. Yeah. I never watched the Sabrina re- reboot. I heard good things about it. I th- isn't it made from the same people that did like Dark Archie or whatever the hell that uh, fucking Jughead uh, shit? What's that show called? Well, I th- so my understanding is it's based in the same universe as Riverdale. Riverdale, that's it. And that's so the... I, I think it's made by the same people that make Riverdale. Yeah, I never watched that show, but I hear it gets fucking nutty. Like I think at some point Jughead is like in a kumite in prison like death matches yeah i've tried to watch riverdale because i did enjoy the initial seasons of sabrina it really fell off for me toward the end it was just getting kind of tired for me there was a whole point where the show got canceled and there was a petition to bring it back and i think netflix just kind of dropped the ball uh, after that Uh, but that being said tried to get into riverdale i guess it doesn't just have the fantasy and magic elements that my mind craves mm-hmm. from a show. It just seemed more like a teenage drama about high school. Yeah. When a weird setting where it's both the fifties and the mid two thousands. Were you a Buffy kid growing up? No, never seen Buffy surprisingly. Yeah. I didn't, I was wondering if it like scratched that Sunnyvale itch. No, Buffy's one of those things where I've always wanted to watch it. And for some reason, I've just never found the time. It's fun. For a long time, there was a bunch of it on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but Buffy's like a good nostalgia watch for me, personally. But I think I also had some feelings for Sarah Michelle Gellar growing up. That That's fair. And if you'll watch the Scooby-Doo movies. Exactly. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it's Freddie Prince Jr., her, and Matthew Lillard. I don't remember who plays Velma. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Really? No, I'm sorry. That is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the woman it's the woman from ER. Oh, okay. I okay. always forget her name. Gotcha. Well, I think that's about all I watched this week. Yeah. Well, are you ready to get into our first feature, Bad Boy Bubby? Yes. Hey son. You can call me Pop. I'm your Pop. Hey Pop! Hello, son. Hello, Pop! Yeah, yeah, that'll do. Don't go making a big thing of it. What's the matter with you, son? You got a bit of a mental condition or something? Fucking kids trying to be me again. 
Shut the fuck up, kid! You useless cunt! Why don't you piss off? Leave Bobby alone. Leave Bobby alone. Fucking useless shit should have been left to die! Okay. Bad Boy Bubby was from 1993. It was shot in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, the director, his name is Rolf D. Heer, and it stars Nicholas Hope, as we mentioned earlier, plays Old Man Smithers in the 2002 Scooby-Doo live-action film. Uh, he also has a bit part in Ash vs. the Evil Dead. I never really caught on with that series. I love the Evil Dead films. I love Army of Darkness. I think it's also on Netflix. So, I don't know if the series is on Netflix. I... Ash vs. the Evil Dead? Yes. It I... was for a while. I thought it... I think at the very least it's on HBO. Yeah. Um, I do enjoy the series. I'm just a couple of seasons into it. It's, it's kind of a, uh, got the mood's got to be right. It's, it's not quite horror. It's mostly comedy for me, but. Well, I wish I could tell you who, uh, Nicholas Hope plays in the series, but I didn't write that part down. So, uh, the budget for bad boy Bubby was 800 grand at the box office. It made just a little bit over that eight hundred eight thousand seven hundred eighty nine dollars. So a profit of eight grand, which for a movie this strange, breaking even is actually kind of a feat in of itself, even if it's a sub million budget. Yeah, I would agree that this film does not have a broad audience base that's going to enjoy it. What do you mean, bro? I think everybody should watch Bad Boy Bubby. I don't disagree that people should watch it. It should be shown in schools, I believe. It should not be shown in schools. It's a vile movie. Uh, it's it's kind of like Flowers for Algernon, but like real horny. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Except he doesn't get smart at any point. He just kind of stays the same dude. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> Flowers for Algernon? You I didn't don't. read that in school? Nope, no idea what that is. Oh, well, there's a mentally disabled man, and they give him smart people drugs, but then he gets so smart that it's also kind of a disability. Yes, it is a great story. Uh, did you notice anything about the presentation of the film that was off to you, audio or visual visual wise? Uh, the fact that you're asking tells me that I should have noticed something, I think. I am uh, kind of dropping a hook here. I did not notice. What did I miss? I got a little worm dangling for you to nibble on. Bro. All right, I'm nibbling. What did I miss? So, I don't know that audio wise this would happen unless you had like a surround system going, which I don't. I just use my TV speakers. I'm a Luddite when it comes to stuff like that. But... Inside of Bubby's wig, he has two contact microphones in his hair to give sort of a panoramic audio experience to like show some sort of schizoactive type hallucination or how he perceives things. And visually, the first two thirds of the film, every single scene is shot by a different director of photography. The last third of the film is shot by the same director of photography to add... uh, visual congruity or consistency because at that point in the film Bubby is a little more sure of himself and how he sees the world whereas at first everything's very chaotic and kind of episodic just like these are just a series of odd events of this blank sheet of a person experiencing modern life well I'll tell you I did watch Bad Boy Bubby with surround sound yeah I did not notice anything but I, there was a lot going on, so I'm sure I may have missed fine details such as audio there's, effects. There's definitely a lot of sensory information going on in that movie, so it, it would be pretty easy to slip something like that. And those are things I wouldn't know unless I like looked it up and read it. 
it's not something I picked up on while watching it, but in rewatching, I did notice like visual incongruities, but I didn't really notice the audio having a particular quality that made it, you know, I guess some sort of simulation of a, a schizoactive, you know, hallucination. Yeah, you know, I think that's a a fair point of the of both of the films that that you picked for us to watch this week. I started from a blank slate. I didn't do any kind of much research. like Bubby himself. Much like Bubby, nothing like Bubby in in many regard. But I started from a blank slate. I had not looked anything up about them. So maybe if I had, I would have picked up on the audio experience they had intended. I will say I wasn't aware that they were shooting multiple scenes through different DPs, DPs, but I will say that that explains a lot of the chaos that I experienced watching <laughs> it. Uh, there, there was the stylistic changes that took place, uh, make a lot more sense. Now I just chalked it up to an intentional design feature to display to you what's going on in Buddy's yeah. head. Or just chalk up to it being, uh, it's a low budget, it's one of this guy's early films, it's probably just a little bit sloppy. I didn't chalk it up to being low budget. In uh, fact, I didn't know it was low low budget. There are signs of it. I mean, mu- much of the film taking place in a single room. Yeah. That was an indicator. But as far as some of the stylistic choices, I assumed most of that was artistically intended and not just the result of low budget. Yeah, and I think the movie, like even narratively, does a lot with perception and just the way that Bubby interacts with the world and the way that other people interact with him. It can take on like a surreal quality at times. Like no one talks like this. Is this just how he's perceiving being talked to? I, I think that's fair. Because lot- obviously we understand him. He's going to do outrageous things and not really know how to act in public. But when you see other people being that way with him, it's like, well, what the fuck is this guy's problem? And I'll say on that note, what, what strikes me as curious is as the film starts, you're limited to this single room, occasionally a side bedroom, and you spend a lot of time there. Did you think it was a bomb shelter when you first watched it? Because that's what I thought. I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, that might have just been my brain connecting dots with... Uh the things his mom tells him about going outside and how she dons a gas mask whenever she leaves because she tells him, you know, if he steps outside, he'll choke to death on toxic air or Jesus will strike him down. One of the two or both. You know, there, there are several indicators that take place or, or that are that are shown throughout the film that suggest there's something more outside than what Mother's suggesting. I will say the first few minutes 15 20 minutes whatever it may be i was curious as to where they were i didn't assume they were in a bomb shelter but i didn't know and then there are a few things that come along like where this cat come from it looks like it may have access in and out somehow Mm -hmm. Uh, there's some air vents that expose to the daylight so there are a few things that indicate that it's not quite what mother's showing and bubby has just enough like cognition to kind of Slowly sketch that out to himself uh, with a few uh, experiments in uh, breathing with cats. That That's right. I mean, but I would separate the two from where he starts to notice that there's more to the world than what his mother's told him. You start to see other individuals coming to the door. I think he notices somebody come to the door without a gas mask on. 
and that kind of triggers it. And then, you know, his dad shows up yeah. without a gas mask and that's kind of the breaking point for mm-hmm. him. Um, and the cat be- thing was really just Bubby learning for the first time what death means. Yeah. Without understanding what's taking place. Well, I always take it as like the cling wrap, both on the cat and then later on his parents, is that uh, he doesn't understand how breathing works because he's been lied to. Yeah, I don't know if that's... The, I don't know if I picked up on that. Yeah. That I, I had those as two distinct... Related, because they both involve breathing. Yeah. But distinct experiences for him one learning about what deceit is and that he may not be able to trust his mother and two learning hey if things can't breathe they die yeah but without understanding what death was and the first time he questions his mom about you know the cat being able to breathe and stuff she puts him in a sleeper hold he's like see you see how important breathing is to you yeah the parenting style there was a little unique yeah, uh, an affectionate mother, some might say, in some regards. Uh, they have an incestuous relationship, Bubby and his mother, that he's not exactly volunteering to participate in, but he does what he's told because he it's the only person he knows. Right, and in some regard, he doesn't know that that relationship is somehow wrong. Yeah. And you can see that because he engages in some handsy play with his mother while his father is there. Yeah, and you imagine that like while his mother gives the airs of being religious. She hasn't taught Bubby anything about Christianity. It's just Jesus is sort of this stand-in for the father figure that's not there to punish him. You know, the whole, you'll father hear about this when he gets off work, but this time it's Jesus is going to strike you down if you step outside the house. Yeah, I mean, she's just created a panopticon for this little single room by putting Jesus at the center of it to say, if you, one, I don't, we don't, do we even know that Bubby knows that's, a Christian belief for Jesus or does he just know it's a guy on a cross? I think he just knows that's an important symbol or something that is to be revered or feared or both. Because the the quality of the crucifix that she has is, is leaves a lot to be desired. It's it not looks quite like Catholic it, enough, you know, it, it also looks like it may be made out of paper mache. <laughs> the, but that aside, Bubby lives his entire life in fear for things he doesn't understand and he's clearly been abused. I had read after watching the film that it was originally intended that Bubby was going to be a child in the film, mm-hmm. but turns out all of the incestuous scenes and the abusive scenes involving his mother and the cat and everything else that takes place was really just too much to have a child as an actor. Oh, they could have got a little guy body double. Little guy have sex with his mom? Yeah. You know, when you put it that way, I think the movie would be too much to process if that were the case. Oh, you know, I'm just a practical thinker. The idea of having Bubby be a seemingly 35-year-old man, mm-hmm. uh, presumably 35. Yeah, I don't know if it ever states his age or if that's something I read in supplemental material, but he is a 35-year-old man that is ostensibly nonverbal. He can repeat things that have been said to him, like a parrot, but he doesn't. He can't organically have a conversation other than like brief moments where he'll say like, leave Bubby alone when he's being attacked. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you say parrot because obviously it, it's clearly a parrot. I described him in my notes as a homicidal parrot as I watched the film. The thing about it to me that stands out is by dis- by portraying Bubby as a 35-year-old man who is what is essentially a feral child, mm-hmm. you have a, a duality to it of... Look at this 35-year-old man. 
He's a man. He interacts with the world as a man, has no idea what's going on. The world sees this seemingly uh, adult figure. Bubby's mental state and capacity is childlike. Like, I, I, again, I, use, I would mm-hmm. use the word feral. Yeah. And you can see both of those things happening without actually having to have a child in that role. That's true. And I might have misspoke earlier when I described him as a blank sheet of a person because that's not entirely accurate. He has been painted in a certain way. It's just all negative. Like, he's only known abuse, so that's how he interacts with the world. Is like, oh, I'll do the thing that I've been, you know, that's how you talk to other people. I've only ever talked to two other people, and that's how they treat me. So. And that's a good point. I, I, it's not even a hurt people, hurt people kind of thing. It's a, oh, that's just what you, hey, nice to meet you. Let me squeeze on you a little bit. For the film, you you really, it seems to me the film plays more the idea of human beings as blank slates that are shaped and molded by their childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. I would contrast that with Frank when we get to it and get to that point of comparison. But in, in Bubby's case, what you're looking at is what is presumably a normal, healthy child. There's no indication that he suffered from any kind of mental uh, defect or learning disability at any point in time, other than the fact that he was completely cut off from society, raised solely by his mother, and taught taught nothing, really, other mm-hmm. than do what mommy says or you're going to be punished. Doing what mommy says includes uh, being sponge-bathed, in the kitchen in a pot mm-hmm. yeah you All, see bubby's penis pretty quick in the first uh fifth in the first minute there's full frontal nudity not what i was expecting from the film but there it is and then within several minutes he's having sexual relations with his mother sexual well, congress which i would say more so she is having it with him without him fully understanding what the process is commanding him to squeeze her breasts, which he later does to women to mixed results. Unfortunately. Yeah. I would, I, I would say mixed results is an appropriate term for that since it was almost never consensual. No, sometimes he's rewarded for it, um, which makes it even more confusing for him. I would say it was confusing for me as well. The number of people <laughs> who were willing to have sex with a feral man. I might have to go back and do the numbers, but I think it's a 50-50 split on whether he's punished or rewarded for squeezing boobs without asking. You you might be right. I think one of the only times that goes poorly for him is when all of those women get out of that like battered women's support group yeah. and he starts fondling them and they proceed to kick him to death. Well, he also goes to prison for uh, fondling a woman before that and in prison he gets raped. You, you are correct about that that that's true so that's two and then but then also well, he squeezes up on the salvation army lane and she's like well let me feed you some pizza and take you home and fuck you well that's true so you have mixed bag with his mom because she ends up hitting him with her father and throwing him outside so that he can die in poison air which he experiences as gasping for air mm-hmm. until he's thrown a gas mask one of the big indicators that he can breathe outside, I think. Well, also the mom and dad like step over him and proceed outside without gas mask. She, you know, and and what's curious about that scene is dad walks out of the room. Bubby starts flirting physically with his mother. Using his words. She's into it. Yeah. Parroting his, his father's words. Wearing his clothes. He's a trimmed off part of his hair and glued it to his face to give him a beard. Like his father pop. Yes. That that is all true, um, you know. So he's he's fully become his father for all intents and purposes. 
he's flirting with his mom in a physical way. And then it's only when, and she's responding to it affectionately until his dad pop comes back in the room, freaks out. And then mom feigns outrage. They abuse Bubby, throw him outside. And right here's where I'm going to drop in a Jordan Peterson quote. Boy needs his father to give him courage. How's a man to find courage without a father? But I will say that that's oddly appropriate because. Well, a bloody, of course it is. I said it. Bubby's relationship with his mother changes drastically when his father comes into the picture. His father does teach him courage. It's a homicidal courage. (laughs) It's more reactionary than anything. It's not forethought. It's just, wow, I'm going to wrap cling wrap around my my dad and mom. Mm -hmm. And okay, he does it. And that's how he gets out in the world. It took his father giving him courage for him to do that. So, you know, thumbs up, Jordan Peterson. (laughs) You really call him as you see him. Well, thank you. You know, and, and one thing is continuing on with that is when Bubby leaves the house voluntarily for the first time. My recollection is it's almost like a 90s Batman movie level of dystopia. Yes. And that's another thing where I was talking about earlier with like, maybe that's just his perception, but like 1993 Adelaide, Australia looks like shit. I understand it's like an industrial city, but my, my first, it's very Mad Max, which, you know, another Australian film. Exactly. My first impression was, oh, so it's not that the place has been poison gassed. He just lives in some kind of post-apocalyptic hellscape where guys ride around in cars in some kind of roving gang. The air is toxic. It just takes about 50 years to give you lung cancer. And, you know, and, and part of that, we chalk that up to different different film styles being used throughout the film for the first two thirds. Somebody made the intentional choice to do that, to make it such a hellscape. And then you quickly, the next scene, you're in like a neon soaked pizza diner. That's kind of, you know, charming. Well, you know, I think what he runs back into his house. Oh yeah. And then he's there for a little bit, franting about what to do. He lays down with his deceased mother, then gets back out, goes down the street and runs into a woman who's just had her purse stolen. The, similarities between those his first encounter and the second is the streets are much cleaner in his second encounter with them Mm -hmm. but the violence is still there because he's been out in the real world for presumably five ten minutes maybe Mm -hmm. and he's already encountered a woman whose purse has been stolen and she's he the thief runs by he walks up to the woman she's like help he stole my purse and bubby just starts saying pop things to her yeah (laughs) What what's one of Pop's like flirtatious things is like you have uh, it's like perfect breast or something or yeah he's got he's got a few I think that's yeah. right um, I think he he says something about them being big and then says they're perfect and this becomes Bubby's go to game he is definitely a titty man not that he really had a choice I guess yeah he's a product of his raising for sure he he never had proper cheek exposure so he doesn't know any better so you know and that that brings up a funny thing. Um, when you look at his Bubby's relationship with his mother, and I know we're all over the place with this, but when you look at Bubby's relationship with his mother, it's completely incestuous. Yeah. It's completely amoral. But what does his mom not want him to do? She throws cold water on him when he masturbates in bed and calls him disgusting for it. And other than her being on top, they have very Christian 
value sex. It's very missionary esque. Mm-hmm. And so she's got standard cowgirl, no reverse. Exactly. It's got the morality that you would ex- expect from someone who were overly devout in that regard, but completely ignores the incestuous part. Or it could just be that, you know, she's like not going to take the time to teach Bubby how to develop a decent stroke. Well, it's like, I'd, I'll just take care of it. That, that may be true, but I, I think the puritanical value of it, of preventing him from masturbating is indicative of her approach to this. Yeah. It's entirely, entirely, uh, ta- sex is taboo to her in many regard, mm-hmm. but not incest. No, that's okay. That may be born out of necessity. Uh, you know, her husband leaves after right as soon as Bubby's born or right before Bubby's born. Leaves to become a preacher. Uh, is that true? That's what he said. He comes back with a collar and he's like, oh, this thing? Yeah, he, he also ran out on his family for 35 years, comes back all of a sudden and wants to be kept up. I really doubt he's a preacher and I, I would assume he's more of a con artist than anything. But that being said... True, but Catholic priests are pretty good at disappearing and relocating after doing some unsavory things. Whatever could you mean. But what, what what I think you see if you really break that down is Bubby's mom is so afraid of men leaving that she doesn't try to find another man. She makes Bubby a captive, a man who can never leave. And because he's never been exposed to the world, he doesn't even know he wants to leave. Yeah, she wants him to be... The man of the house on her terms. You're allowed to be a man when I need you to be, but otherwise you need to be a silent little boy that, you know, obeys. Because if he goes outside, he's going to leave her. Mm-hmm. To the extent that where whenever she ventures out early in the film, she tells him, do not leave this chair, and he doesn't. He sits there and pees himself, and then, of course, he gets beat for peeing himself, which I think that's probably, like, the gravity of uh, Nicholas Hope's performance is that scene where she's just, like, smacking him about the head and shoulders, and he's just standing there, like, quietly crying you see the tears roll down he's got the same haircut as me i'm 31 so in a four years it's probably my balding is going to progress to that exact level did you think of me when you saw his haircut i wasn't going to say that i wasn't going to bring it up you were thinking it though i'm not going to say no we both kind of have a nick cave mullet another the, australian the f- anytime though anytime i see a a a guy who's about your height, a and balding, lecherous creep who's balding. We just go, hey, that's Matt. Yeah, you've sent me some unflattering uh, internet celebrity lookalikes. You know, in middle school, people told me I looked like Justin Long, and I'm just going to stick with that one. No, no, <laughs> Justin Long uh, aged very well. Well, he didn't. He just didn't age. Fair enough. I would consider that aging well. What, he didn't age though. How can you age well if you don't? How can you do something well if you don't do it? I believe the, the phrase "aging well" implies the fact that he does not appear to have aged at all, despite getting older. I wouldn't break this down too much. It seems pretty self-explanatory. My mom says I'm handsome. Your mom does say you're handsome. I'm sure. So we've only really covered the first, maybe. 20, 25 minutes of the film, but that's really where the most disturbing aspects of it. After he leaves the house and starts experiencing the world, there are moments where it's, you know, troubling and awkward, but I think I find his journey mostly delightful. It does at times kind of take on this Terry Gilliam type satire, like, oh, this disabled person, he actually knows what's up. He knows something we don't about this life. I never thought that for a second. 
I thought, what is wrong with every single person he's encountering? <laughs> because the number of people that he encounters and they don't go, man, this guy needs help. They go, oh, he's awesome. Let's have sex with him. Is astounding. Do you think he's capable of consent? No. I don't either. Uh, I would say that for the most part, he is, it's kind of like the movie Big. <laughs> Yeah, does, does Tom Hanks have sex in that movie? Yeah. Oh, man. I forgot about that. <laughs> like, but he's 12, right? 12 or 13. Yeah. He meets a woman and not a huge fan of Big. I don't remember who his counterpart is in that. No. But, you know, she falls in love with this 12-year-old in an adult's body. and It'd be like if Robin Williams got pussy and Jack. You remember and so, Jack? Yeah, so they have sex and it's like... Okay, I get it. Physically, he's there, but mentally, he's not. This is the exact same thing. He's got a very gross, smelly body, and I'm pretty sure for most of it, he's carrying around a rotting cat. Yeah, he keeps his cat in his briefcase. And for a while there, I think he just keeps it in a Walmart bag or like a grocery store bag because it's Australia. I don't know what their stores are, but... I thought he took a Pop's briefcase whenever he left. Oh, he did. Yeah. You're right. And then at some point... It's for carrying cat. And a pizza. Well, he also picks up another briefcase that's even bigger. Oh. That's when he finds the second cat and gets... That's when he gets pizza in the briefcase. You see, life's about progression, moving forward, hustling, grinding, getting bigger and bigger briefcases. For more and more pizza and more and more dead cats. Yeah. Um, you, can't, you can't settle in this life, man. But without jumping ahead too far... We can jump ahead pretty far because we spent a lot of time on this house. <laughs> The, like, well, the movie feels like it takes forever in his house. Yeah. And the movie also feels like it takes forever because it's a full two hours long. Is it two hours? It's just, it's right about there. Yeah. It takes forever. It's close. I think it's like 110 minutes at two hours, 120. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. It's about two hours. But, you know, the, the movie is a series of him going from one group to the next, being accepted, meeting the people with the random carolers for the salvation army he walks up grabs one of one of the women by the chest and they go all right let's go get pizza all he knows about that experience is the word pizza but then he moves on to another group and they're after having sex with the salvation army lady she takes him home he does she really threw him a bone she goes home it's problematic (laughs) why and she sings him She's like, have you ever, what's your favorite song or something? And then starts singing to him as she climaxes. And it's all really weird. The whole point, I think, ended up being is that everyone's suffering from past trauma or their childhood. And no one is really more of an adult than another. That may get lost in the fact that he's very clearly still a feral child. Yeah. But... Things aren't going good for you if you're having sex with Bubby. He moves on to the next group of, what, musicians? Yes, he's picked up by a band. They're With it being the early 90s and Australia always kind of being a little bit behind culturally, they're kind of like an 80s new wave band. The lead guitarist has Robert Smith hair, even kind of has that bloated Robert Smith face. I think that's just, you know, synonymous with the Commonwealth countries. It's pub culture. Makes your face swell real bad. That may be true. I'm not familiar with pub culture in Commonwealth countries. But... You know, he he hooks up with these guys. They he walks up, grabs the mic, starts doing a free flow. That's much later. Uh, when he first meets up with the band, he's just 
they pick him up on the side of the road and he's just sort of hanging out with them, I think. I don't think he does vocals till near the end of the film when he reunites with them. Or am I misremembering? See, you I think you, he goes you, the, you're right. So what yeah. happens first is they pick him up for some reason. They throw him in the back of the truck. Well, he gets in the car with that woman. They're at a red light. He starts yelling profanity at a cop. That's right. This is the one like good person that like tries to help him. Then she, you know, kind of has enough. It's like, okay, you can't be getting me involved with the cops when I'm trying to take you to a facility. So the cops rip him out of her car. The guy behind them is driving a open air box truck and throws Bubby in the back where he meets the band. And then he travels around with him as kind of a roadie. Mm-hmm. And then during that time ends up mugging some, killing somebody. Does he, does he kill him or does he just mug him for the money? No. Okay. So the band takes them to their gig, which is like a empty beer hall that they've booked. No one shows up. They're all frustrated. And after the show, they're having a meeting and fighting about money. While they're having this conversation, they notice a newspaper about Bubby's parents being murdered. And Bubby points to the paper and says, let me mom and pop. That's true. That's a good impression. Yeah. I was going to skip over <laughs> most you. of the band stuff because it, it's just, real dry but you're right that is an important detail from their encounter is he he points out yeah. that that is his mom and pop and then they also find the cling wrapped cat mm-hmm. yeah they ask him please throw it out but uh they also notice in the article that there's a fifty thousand dollar reward for turning bubby and they're flat broke so they're pondering on whether or not they should turn him in they put headphones on him so he can't hear what they're talking about but they ultimately decide not to turn Bubby in because they've grown affectionate towards him. I kind of like the band moments, but that might just be me. I think it gets lost in the shuffle. At yeah. that point of the film, there's a lot going on. He's bouncing around a lot. True. You're trying to unpack what you just saw, and now there's all sorts of yeah of new experiences going on. It's very chaotic. I think that reflects Bubby's experience in the world. Mm-hmm. But it is overall very chaotic. Yeah. So he does understand that the band is like fighting over money and they ask him to wait outside with his dead cat because it's making everybody sick. I don't remember if they're still discussing whether or not to get rid of him or not, but in his walk, Bubby happens to go to a convenience store where there's plenty of money laid out on the counter and he says, Oh, my friends need money. I'll take this money. And when the clerk puts up a fight, he shows him the dead cat and he's like, Oh, what the fuck? And runs out. Well, and I think they sent him on his way. I think they tell him they drop they him off him with go, a friend of theirs. I think they tell him to go get some money and he goes and that's when he goes and gets money and brings it back to them. Yeah. Okay. That might've been when they decided to keep him or not, but and, I, and cause, and, and you're right. Then they drop him off with a friend mm-hmm. and there's so weird. <laughs> it is hard to keep sequence of the events because so much happens once you leave the house. Yeah. And again, I, I think that's supposed to, portray his experience in the world Mm -hmm. as it being just a rush of new experiences that it's all just sensory information just like broken up little vignettes of like oh i met this guy today this is what happened absolutely and it's overwhelming Mm -hmm. and in some regard i think what you're experiencing is an unreliable narrator because it's almost as if bubby is telling the story even though you're kind of watching what happens to him there's no way to know if what's actually happening is just what he's perceiving Especially when there's like random acts of cruelty towards him. Is that him just being like, oh, people are being mean and unfair to me? Or is that just like people in Adelaide are generally that shitty? You know, I think what Australians are supposed to be super nice. um, But I don't know. I don't know what it's like in the 90s. So after the band drops them off with their suave, wealthy friend for some reason. I don't know why they didn't ask that guy for money. He dresses Bubby up in like a linen suit and takes him to a nice restaurant. 
where he then proceeds to hit on a woman who reminds him of his mother, which she takes very poorly. Yeah, she thinks he's calling her, like, fat and stuff, and she reacts poorly. He tries to remedy the situation by doing what Bubby does and squeeze some titties. And then at that point, he, uh, is that when he goes to jail? That's when he's arrested. This is the first time he's facing consequences for groping. And then he, he's in jail for a while. They punish him with... He refuses to speak to the warden. That's true. But he's not really capable. He plays with cockroaches, which is a thing he's always done. Yeah. And Bubby loves music, but he cannot stand bagpipes. No and one And that's can. something, yeah, I was about to say, that's something we have in common. When I was at college, there was this one guy on campus that used to fucking practice outside, and I could never pinpoint where he was, because it carries all the way across campus. Look. There's one thing to play bagpipes. In Bubby's experience, they put a troop of bagpipers at the end of a concrete hallway, just belting out yeah. bagpipe noise. That's another thing. Like, did that really happen? Or did he just like hear that over a speaker and assume there was a cacophony of this dreadful music? I don't know. I was suffering along with Bubby as it was happening. Yeah, I was trying to think, like, why would that be there i was like did they like execute someone and that's like you know playing them out or i assumed it was just routine prisoner treatment yeah torture people by making them listen to a bagpipes bagpipe cacophony oh you think you're tough try being scottish for 12 hours pal just classic classic like fbi cia tactics to get people out of places blast them with music until they go insane yeah inner sandman but in this case i think What the CIA and FBI have apparently never figured out is bagpipes. Bagpipes, yeah. We would have really gotten... uh, Gitmo would have been much more fruitful if we had done bagpipes instead of Metallica. That's true. Enhanced interrogation with bagpipes, you know, 100% has to be more effective. There's probably some group of fucking assholes that have like a Metallica bagpipe tribute band. What do you mean a group? There are multiple groups, I'm sure. (laughs) Wait a minute, didn't you show me like... A Red Hot Chili Peppers cover band that was bagpipes. The Red Hot Chili Pipers. That is true. You're you're correct. Yeah. The Red Hot Chili Pipers. Yeah. So like, fuck you. <laughs> Why did you make me do that? <laughs> I, I'm not that crazy about the actual Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's quality entertainment. Bagpipes can be okay. That is not what we just said for the last three minutes. But moving on. After I, refusing to cooperate with the warden, Bubby is moved to a different cell where he is promptly raped by his new cellmate. And it doesn't spend a whole lot of time there. You just see sad Bubby getting uh, pushed on. Yeah, well, what you... The significance of that is he sits there, surrenders quietly, and suffers through it because that's what he knows. That's how he was raised by his mother, who did the exact same thing, but... Yeah, he does the same kind of shutdown mode that he did when his mom was smacking him around earlier, except no tears this time. You know, his experience with the world has been a very, very mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And so he, he handles it the only way he knows how is he, I think he shuts it out. But it's sometime after that. The that warden tells him he's completely rehabilitated and ready to rejoin society, although he has not learned or grown in any way. He's not, you know, any better at communicating. He doesn't have any a better understanding of the world. Well, I think that that has to be one of the pivotal moments that caused Bubby to die and Pop to be the dominant personality he starts to display 
It's not immediately after that, but that has to be a part of it. It is, because not long after he's released, he immediately goes back to his old home and lays down next to the uh, tape outline. I guess they use tape instead of chalk over there of his mother's body. And he finally starts to feel remorse and he begins to sob, realizing that what he's done, what he's lost, what he can't undo. I don't know if it's that deep, but I'd also like to point out that I wouldn't base this. I wouldn't let this movie be my basis for concluding that Australians use tape outlines and not chalk. Well, I'm ignorant of Australia, so I have nothing to do but believe this film as 100% nonfiction. Fair enough. This is a historical nonfiction film about a feral boy and feral man-child. I know nothing to the contrary. I'm not, I can't argue. I, I just can't. <laughs> Goddamn right, you can't, pal. <laughs> I've been outmaneuvered. That's straight Teflon, that argument, dude. You can't pick this steel trap. Nothing sticks to it. So after he's overcome with remorse when visiting uh, his old home where he murdered his parents, that's when he makes the transition from Bubby to adopting the identity of Pop, which is what his father called himself. Which, maybe that's his name? Maybe he just calls himself Pop because it's like, that's what his that... mo- His mom called him something else, but when he introduces himself to Bobby, he says, you call me Pop. And then Bobby starts to introduce himself as, I be Pop. Yeah, that you're, you're right. That is how that goes. And there's a back and forth after he adopts Pop as his main personality where sometimes he's Bubba, a Bubby, sometimes he's Pop. We should remake this bad boy Bubba. <laughs> and it's just the same movie, but set in the rural South. I don't want to remake this movie in any way. I, the movie exists, and that's okay. There doesn't need to be more of them. You know what? I'm okay with that. You know, that's actually a stance I usually go with. I just got excited about bad boy Bubba. <laughs> Sometimes that's how bad ideas take place. He's named after Bubba from Rick and Bubba. So, but getting getting past that, we quickly find out that Bubby is a intellectual disability whisperer. Oh, yes. This is when he uh, meets the lady caring for people with cerebral palsy, which are played by real people with cerebral palsy. They're not actors. And, you know, they're speaking in a series of grunts and moans, and Bubby is responding and translating to the caregivers, which, from happenstance, gets him taken into... Their facility. This assisted living facility for disabled people. Where he then lives for some period, it's unclear how long, is the translator and then also seduces one of the caregivers. Yes, her name is Angel and she has angel tits. He does. This is an example of Bubby squeezing tits and things going right. Well, to to back up, it gets a little weird because there's the shower scene where she walks up. Titty squeezes with boundaries. And he wants to squeeze her boobs. And she says something to the effect of only if you're going to be Bubby. Because he's going pop now. Yeah, Bubby she, dead. Pop now. I forget how she becomes aware of the two different personas. But she understands that when he's Bubby, he can be more forthcoming with how he feels. As opposed to Pup, who is a adult, stoic, tough man. So she rewards him being more childlike by letting him play with her boobs. Yes. And this develops into a sexual relationship with Angel. Again, it's real creepy why so many grown women are having sex with a man who is essentially a child. Yes. And shortly after that, we have a... 
very sad scene, probably one of the sadder scenes in the movie where one of the disabled women with cerebral palsy admits to Bubby that she loves him and wants to be with him. And Bubby's like, well, no, I'm sorry. I don't feel that way. But then he starts crying just because she's crying. You know, he feels bad that she can't have him. Well, and you know, it's unclear. Well, it's ever stated if Bubby's actually feeling genuine emotion toward her in this scene, or if he's just parroting what she's experiencing back to him. But my impression of it was that he's having a real genuine connection to somebody else who can't display and exhibit their uh, their feelings. They can't communicate in much the same way he's n- he's not able to communicate. His entire vocabulary is based off words he heard other people say that he only knows how to say back. Like he he learns some context for him, but he never learns to effectively communicate. No, no, and that is a good point that they're both characters that are used to being not understood in a literal sense, not, you know, misunderstood as in they're odd people, but well, Bubby is, but they're used to not being able to express themselves. And that's something that connects them. And I think Bubby truly is feeling empathetic in that moment, but it is possible that he's just parroting what he's seeing, but he's also kind of describing to Angel in his own words, what's going on. And through all of this, you know, his, his relationship develops with Angel to the point where she takes him home to meet her very, (laughs) very religious parents. Very cruel religious parents. And this is another scene where I'm like, is this a matter of perception? Is this just how Bubby's taking the scene, or are these people that awful? My, My impression of the scene was that this is how awful these people are, and the significance of the scene is that it shows that Bubby is so crippled by his mistreatment but he was also isolated so he never developed skills angels angels experience in life was very similar Mm -hmm. she had two parents who were equally if not more verbally abusive and probably physically abusive and beat her down but she socialized unlike bubby who is essentially feral Mm -hmm. angel is socialized and the comparison here is that in some regard, she's almost just as childlike as Bubby, mm-hmm. except she feigns being adult and being mature. And that may be why they connect so well. And it's Bubby's um, lack of understanding of the world that gives him his ultimate like liberation. She doesn't because, like you said, she's socialized. She understands, you know, if I leave my parents, then, you know, I'm cut off. What do I have if I don't have my family? Whereas Bubby, you know doesn't think like that he just did an action and you know now he has consequences but in those consequences he has freedom and then he kills her parents yeah yeah the cling wrap comes back he's he's got a thing with the cling wrap and squeezing titties but you know i'm not as mad at him for the cling wrap murders yeah i i'm okay with the murders uh not okay with the um physical uh, and sexual assaults of random women Mm mm-hmm but yeah, I mean, his murder is in large part justified, understandable. He basically murdered his mom and pop all over again. In an attempt probably to liberate Angel in the way that he was liberated after murdering his parents. And for all intents and purposes, she is liberated from that murder. Yeah. There's a brief discussion about it where it, I almost missed the part where he kills her parents. Mm-hmm. It's such a minor thing. She's unperturbed. Then they go off to have kids together. Yeah, that's the uh, ending credit scene is them living happily ever after and having children. 
one thing I think we missed was uh, the church scene, because I think he's regurgitating that, some of the things the priest scientist said to him yeah, at the parents. That That is true. I think... Um, he goes up, there's a, the man playing the organ in the cathedral mm-hmm. and he starts asking him about, I don't, I don't remember what the phrase is. He asks him about God or Jesus. And he tells him that it's all made up and it's every human being's duty to think God out of existence, which is what he shouts back at her religious parents. Once they start getting on her case for her weight, that's their big bugaboo is, uh, I think they actually say fat people are an abomination. That, that sounds right. That, but, you know, from the mouth of babes, you know, you've got Bubby in here shouting. <laughs> okay, you I thought you were think. talking about the parents being, uh, you know, they're they're ignorant people. But, you know, sometimes ignorant people are right. <laughs> no, no, no. You've got Bubby who, you know, is, he's emotionally crippled, but he's also keen, probably from necessity, in predicting how people feel and what they're going to be doing. So, to some extent... He's developed a very effective coping mechanism. Of now it's wrapping. not it's not it's not very well developed. Otherwise, he would figure out that people didn't like being groped. Mm-hmm. But in this scene, he feeds off the energy of the people around him to the extent of he notices. Oh well, they're they're going on and on about how Angel is an abomination in the eyes of God. So Bubby starts shouting about how it's our duty to think God out of existence. It's the right thing to say in that moment to help liberate Angel mm-hmm. from her relationship with abusive parents. And it's only because it comes from someone as innocent and as pure, all things considered, as Bubby. Yeah, and I'm sure in his mind it was just, oh, this is something they care about. They're hurting Angel. I'm going to insult the thing they're caring about because they're insulting the thing I care about, which is her. You know, I disagree. I don't no? think it's that. And. You think he was just getting aggro because they were raising their voices? I think that he was picking up on the fact that they were hurting Angel. And he 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 understands something fundamental about human emotion that people don't get. That's why he's able to communicate. My theory is that's why he's mm-hmm. able to communicate with the people with cerebral palsy. Because he's communicating on a nonverbal level because he doesn't know how to speak. It's animal instinct. He is, he's, he's interpreting people's physical cues, verbal cues, whatever it may be. He is keyed in to the unspoken communication. And he, somehow he knows this is the time to be defensive. And he realizes that those statements of thank God out of existence are appropriate for that situation or it's totally luck. And maybe it's just a coincidence that that's what he says. But Mm -hmm. I like to, I think based off that, that Bubby is more complex out of necessity than just a guy who gets lucky and parrots things because people are yelling and he parrots the same subject matter of, of what they've said. And, uh, after this scene, we have what felt like a dream sequence to me because it doesn't show how he gets there. It's just suddenly he's in this large studio space with the guitarist from the band. Without the rest of the band, he's showing him a series of giant sketches he did while giving him like a history of like man's cruelty. And in that, he's kind of speaking as the voice of not God, but just like this is what the moral center should be for you. And try not to cling wrap people so much. It's completely nonsensical in how it gets there and what the purpose is. I uh, I presume it's just 
to display the passage of time mm-hmm. and some and Bubby trying to become more of a le- full fledged person. But the real moral of the story is try not to cling wrap people so much because you've killed four people. Yeah. He doesn't really like wag his finger around for the past murders. Just like, you know, maybe cool that off in the future. Doesn't say anything about the titty squeeze, though. He doesn't. And that's that's disturbing. I mean, he should really be like, hey, also don't sexually assault people. Well, I mean, like I said, in Bubby's anecdotal experience, and I believe all of this, like I said, is kind of a dream sequence that's taking place in his head because that guitar player is saying stuff that's like incongruent with his character. It has nothing to do with him because he doesn't really speak much the rest of the movie. It's usually the other guitarists in the band doing all the talking. I think I've yeah. got, he might be the bass player, the blonde guy. Yeah, I I did not pay enough attention to the band members to know which one does what. But since we're talking about the band. Uh, I believe should... after this is where he has his performance with them. So he does his, uh, his multi-night yeah. tour with these guys where it's absolutely just a constant support supportive audience of people responding well to this weird punk type show yeah so the band's playing kind of a duran duresque s new wave and then bubby when he's reunited with him just takes the stage and the microphone and like well okay let's see what bubby's gonna do for these people and he begins a pretty much listing in order everything that's been said to him up to that point and it takes on like a context that actually is like oh this is kind of actually poetic in the context of this instrumentation and it develops in some sense he is telling his life story through the statements of other people that he's committed to memory Mm -hmm. and it's very spoken word it's very aggressive reminds me from like that scene in dewey cox where he's just like we need to go faster. We need to go faster. And they we start playing. We invents punk rock. Punk rock. <laughs> yes, where they just go faster and yeah. faster and faster. During He's doing all the phase. cocaine. Dude, and you're playing so fast. <laughs> you're like some kind of, some kind of punk. And so you know he just and people dig it. They go nuts for it. I dig it. I'd go see that. Then you know, as the his tour progresses, the audience gets bigger. He they start celebrating him with cling wrap. Mm-hmm. Yes, it becomes the, a well. A poor, well, I guess a poorly kept secret mm-hmm. that he loves cling wrap. Yeah, I get. I don't know how like he's able to. I guess ostensibly brag about the murders with the cling wrap, like because the band adopts that into their aesthetic. They start wearing the cling wrap mask, and I believe the audience members are wearing like Catholic collars. Yeah, they wear Catholic collars. They wear cling wrap around their heads. Oh, okay, the they bring does too. they bring that sex doll with cling wrap wrapped around her head yeah which he starts to imagine is angel well doesn't uh, he imagine it's a couple different women the sex doll i think i think at some point well in, in some regard i think angel shows up at one of them mm-hmm. and they're really flirty and so then the set the the big breasted sex doll comes into play after that because now angel is part of this mythos of bubby mm-hmm so the the two things that Bubby celebrates his entire life, cling wrap and large boobs, are exactly what he becomes known for with his spoken word rap. Yeah, I guess you could call it a rap. It's, I mean, it's poetry. And it's just spoken word poetry. It's, he just is calling it as he sees it. And from there we have the ending credits scene where it's flash forward a couple of years and he has children with Angel and they appear to be happy and normal. That's another thing where I'm not sure if that's actually how his life goes or if that's him like daydreaming about what he wants. But for the sake of this film, let's say that's how it, things end up for Bubby and he has a happy, healthy life. 
I mean, that's what I assumed happened. You know, or maybe he goes to prison for all the murders. He did commit four of them. And he robbed a convenience store. He did rob the convenience store. I mean, that's not such a big... It's for his buddies. Well, that's true. Hey, you get a slack of it, like a slap on the wrist if it's for your buddies. Officer, it was for my bros. You do not understand. They need this. But, I, I mean, I find it hard to believe that Bubby is able to successfully integrate into the, the real world without any, excuse me, professional uh, socialization. Yeah. I mean, he really needs to go see somebody who's an expert. You would think they would have someone like that in the assisted living facility when he's helping take care of the disabled people. You'd think, hey, well, maybe we can work on this guy learning the alphabet or something. Uh, this is also the same assisted facil- uh, assisted living facility where <laughs> he gets a one new of sexual the, relationship. One yeah. of the caregivers falls in love with a man who is clearly intellectually disabled. North- nurses get horny, dude. Uh, yeah, and I, I guess it, again... Back to Angel's own childlike disposition. It's not as creepy as it seems, but I'm still getting big vibes. I just, I can't get past it. Yeah. And that's my biggest complaint about this movie. Do you think she maybe sees Bubby as like a Jesus figure and his ability to communicate with the cripple and the lame? You know, I don't know. Coming from her religious background? That's possible. Maybe it's uh, assumed that he has the gift of tongues and he can speak to people who can't speak because well, he... Well, I don't know if he's good at eating pussy. He's he, mostly a titty guy. He might have the gift of tongues, though. Fair enough. But in the the biblical context of him having a universal language may and, and her, uh, I assume, Catholic upbringing, I don't yeah. know if it's stated. Is Australia predominantly Catholic or are they, are they mostly Protestant being, you know, Commonwealth? I, I don't know when the British went over to Australia, if they were Catholic still or 1800s Protestant. 1800s or so, so they would have been Protestant. But then again, you know, they could still have their own thing. You know, I, so I don't know, but they're clearly, you know, her parents are clearly, clearly devout deeply devout and so angel's got to have that instilled in her and and you're right i didn't think about bubby as some kind of jesus-esque figure that's something i just thought while sitting here right now it's like oh maybe you know he's got long brown hair and then but it's possible to to over interpret this and say that there's some kind of gift of gab but I, i don't know i don't know if it's that complicated yeah there's so much you could read into in this film that's usually chalked up to like, oh, no, 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 this is just a guy that doesn't know better. This is how he would interact with the world. There's nothing really, you know, you need to dig into, but it is there to dig into if you want. Yeah, there's there's a lot to it. And I, some of my post-viewing research, again, indicated that this is a, a parable for child abuse, and which is uh, very clear. I mean, there's there's no question about it. That the ultimate story being told here is significant abuse to a child and isolation is going to cripple them as an adult. But what I don't get is how it makes him an anti or bizarro Forrest Gump (laughs) who just stumbles his way through a series of events where he's both rewarded and punished, but largely rewarded without any understanding of what's taking place. Like, he married... He marries Angel in much the same way Forrest Gump becomes a ping pong champion. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of happens off screen and Leonard did it. Exactly. Uh, and just like the guy who did it, I've been staring at Walter Philippex 
red glowing <laughs> eyes this whole time. Look up Walter Filipek on YouTube, folks. You'll have a great time with him. So we've recapped the plot. Uh, what were your overall thoughts? Did you enjoy this movie? So I did not. You did not. Okay. I, I think it is a. I think it's a a decent movie. I didn't enjoy it. I don't want to watch it again. I think that it was worth watching once. Um, it, I think it has uh, a value in kind of looking at childhood trauma, how trauma affects adults, and, you know, dealing with abandonment issues and then the effects of just extreme, extreme child abuse. And it has value in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, his story is somewhere between A Child Called It and Forrest Gump. And I think what I, one of the things I noted is that his character reminds me of um, Norman Bates mm-hmm. mixed with uh, Steve Buscemi's character from Billy Madison <laughs> and okay. Jack Nicholson in almost any movie that he's ever been in, All right. primarily The Shining. I was going to say Cuckoo's Nest, but okay. Well, I feel like they're shiny because it's more malevolent than One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't see Bubby as a malevolent character, though. No, but his actions are very... They're not maliciously intended, but they're malicious in outcome. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have malice, but his but you would think that he would. If it weren't for his childlike naivete, you would think all of his actions were calculated and malicious it's kind of like a question in horror films like does the slasher have morality or is he just a force of nature i think in this regard bubby has morality it's a twisted morality because it's taught by an amoral or immoral mother do you think it changes throughout the film though do you think he grows his own sort of morality throughout i think he learns to navigate the world but he's ultimately confined to what he initially knows do you think he, he makes a good father? I, I mean, the end credits show him playing with his child. Yeah. But there's another movie, and I don't remember what it's called. Or I Am it. Sam. Is it where, I Am Sam? Where Sean Penn is a, <laughs> is the R word. Where, and he has a seven-year-old undiagnosed yeah. R word. Yeah, so he's got he's got a, a seven-year-old significant daughter. intellectual disability. Yeah. He's at a... This eighth. film is much smarter than I am, Sam. <laughs> He's at an eighth grade level. She's at no, seven. No, in the trailer for the movie, because I haven't seen all of I am, Sam, and I probably won't. They say, you have a understanding of a seven-year-old. What happens when she turns eight? So, <laughs> like a seven-year-old can raise a child from newborn to seven, no problem. But the second they you know, catch up past them. So without getting into the problematic... Writing we're, of we're I Am a, Sam. We're doing an I Am Sam episode uh, now. Without getting into the problematic uh, I Am Sam issues, I think Bubby would have the ability to to be a caring father. He could be involved. He could be playful with the children, which is what it shows in the ending credit is they're running around the yard. We presume it's his kids. Yeah. It may not be his kids. He, he just may just em. be in someone's yard with their with, kids. With Angel. <laughs> Um, but that, that aside, Bubby would not, I don't think Bubby would have the ability to teach them morality. I think Angel would have to be the, the driving force for their upbringing, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean Bubby couldn't teach them to be emotionally in touch with. Do you think maybe he would be a better communicator with children than most parents because the child is not operating on full capacity like an adult is mentally? I feel like he could talk to babies and, but once children start speaking, I think he would just start saying what they're saying back to him and they would say the things that he said back to him. 
new movie pitch baby geniuses but they just bully a 35 year old man he knows that they're being mean to him but they're using real big words that's ludicrous but all in all bubby is a an interesting movie that's worth a watch it's definitely not safe for kids and i would not i you almost, wouldn't recommend it i wouldn't to the average viewer if there's anything else you want to watch i would pick that over bad boy bubby but if you're just there going hey i want to work through some personal issues <laughs> uh watch bad boy bubby and then don't do any of that stuff well i personally think bad boy bubby is delightful and i've watched it multiple times i think it's the perfect example of joseph campbell's hero's journey <laughs> i mean i'm i'm sure i could map that out i'm fucking around but <laughs> I find it charming. Legitimately, I do. I love the performances. I love the visual incongruity now that I know it's there. But other than that, you know, the visuals, even not knowing that there's different directors of photography, there's some really cool shots where it's neon soaked at night and during the day it's just like dusty gravel in the air. Well, and this gets into a little bit of the area in which I'm definitely a simpleton. I, I don't, the fact of the matter that it's well shot especially considering the budget that it's well acted. It's, it's very well acted. Um, it's very well cast. It's exceptionally well done for what it's trying to do. I just don't care. <laughs> the, I can appreciate the artistic value of the film, but I do not enjoy it. I think it has far more value in just analyzing the, the effects that, abuse has on a child more so than it does any kind of artistic uh, value well what is a blank slate of a man to do without morals how is he to navigate this world look blank slate do you think my daughter's hot i do blank slates aside the nature versus nurture dichotomy is clearly present in both films mm-hmm. which whenever we segue into that we'll yeah. talk about a little bit more but I think we're about done with Bubby. If Do you have any more thoughts on it? Um, you know, there were a couple of things I made note of when I was watching. So let me, let me go through here real quick and see if there's anything that just screams out to me. Um, most of my notes tend to be... I think we be, glossed over the second cat death. Bubby gets a second well, cat. Well, the, the second cat death is not him killing a cat. No. He adopts this cat, goes to get pizza the only thing he knows as that's food other than bread sugar milk mm-hmm. and comes back to bring this cat pizza and these two kids are torturing a cat to death he intervenes to save the cat yeah. all too late um and so he suffers death at another person's hands at this point so uh, this may be the first time he see it's probably it's the second time he sees cruelty outside of his family being done to another person Mm -hmm. and it's the first time he sees death that's not at his hands and this is post him getting out of prison so the gravity of it affects him a little more i think than the first cat dying because this is if i'm not if i'm getting the sequence of events wrong i'm sorry but i believe this happens prior to him going back to his home i think this is where like the remorse avalanche begins is when he realizes you know those boys killed my cat i killed the other cat oh man i killed my parents that i i i'm in a similar boat i do not recall the if sequence yeah. that is the right chronology of that but i think that's a fair assessment it's bubby's learning death 
throughout the film. He's learning the cruelty of man. The importance of oxygen. The importance of oxygen. Uh, but whether he fully grasps... the deceptive nature of titties. Fair. Sometimes they're for you, sometimes they ain't. And how are you to parse the two? How are you to parse the two when the breasts are offered? But You know, the, the rope that Bubby has to... The rope that a uh, road that Bubby does walk is narrow in the sense of he is not intentionally malicious, but he is rewarded for bad behavior. He's abusive. Mm-hmm. He gropes women, leaving a women's help group from like uh, women who had suffered from spousal abuse, yeah, or you know some kind of sexual abuse, and so he victimizes those women. Then, but he doesn't realize that he victimized them. All he yeah. knows is all of these women just start aggressively kicking him nearly to death. Like, they yeah. kick him a lot. And so the, one of the questions that remains unanswered is, does Bubby know the difference between when his actions are causing people to respond? So is his cruelty being punished versus when is someone just being cruel to him? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's ever a clear answer to that at all. but Not um, one that he could parse, you know. As a reasonable adult, you obviously say, yeah, you don't grab people like that. Of course, you got your ass beat. You deserved it. But And another thing that I think shows growth for him throughout the movie is how he interacts with the second cat. Because when he leaves to go get a pizza, he starts to like yell at it not to leave the same way his mother did. But then he stops himself and says, oh, nope, you're cool. Good cat. Good cat. Just stay. Well, part of that, I think, is also his fear of someone leaving him. Yeah. He wants the cat to stay there. And he recognizes that how his mother treated him didn't make him stay. It made him want to leave more. And so I think his his conflict is he's he's doing everything he can because he just, with all of his heart, loves this cat that he just met. And so, you know, he's doing everything he can, but he doesn't know how to interact with the world. He doesn't know that this cat doesn't know the difference between, you know, how he says stay here or not. He just knows he didn't like it. It's, you know, again, he... At the very least, he's kind of learning the golden rule, do unto others, you know. Uh, I mean, except for the fact that he still well, he gropes wants, people. He wants to be groped. <laughs> um, I didn't say it was a perfect rule. I didn't write it. Well, he doesn't want to be groped from his prison scene. True. So he's learning. His experience in, in life seems to be life happening to him in much the same way that Forrest Gump happens. Yeah, neither are an active participant participant in their own life yeah so but i will say one of the consistent notes from my uh viewing of this is why does everyone keep having sex with him <laughs> i really don't get it um also there's a scene when he's playing when he's he's with a band and they're doing the music uh-huh. where the light is shining on his face one way when he's bubby and another way when he's pop that uh, okay. is, uh, you know, it's artistic. It's neat. There's a lot of, it's like I said, it's a really well done movie. Yeah. It's not worth watching if you just want to have a good time. Yeah. Well, from one bad boy to another, I think Bubby's fantastic and you can stream it currently on Tubi. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about 2014's Frank. Is this the part where we talk about cash app? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if cash app would like to give us some money. Nice to see. 
And we're back. Yeah, good to be back. Our next film today is Frank from 2014, directed by Lenny Abramson, who also directed uh, The Room. Not The Room, not Tommy Wiseau's The Room, but just Room. Uh, that was 2015. I remember that. It was a Academy Award nominee for something. I think it's about a mother and son that, much like Bubby, grew up entirely in one room. But uh, it was written by uh, John Ronson, who's a fairly famous like gonzo-type journalist. He's written some books that I've heard of, but I haven't read. He wrote that one, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. That's been really popular the last couple of years, referring to cancel culture. Uh, this film is actually an adaptation of one of his articles about his experiences as the keyboardist for the uh, Frank Sidebottom band, which was a British comedian slash talk show host in the early 80s in England that also had a, you know, musical comedy career. I was watching some uh, clips earlier, research, and I saw where he was interviewing a uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost for a uh, hot fuzz on their press junket. And he has the giant paper mache head. Um, oh, he also wrote uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, if you've seen the film adaptation of that. I have seen it. I don't recall it very well. It's been a while. The one where the CIA is doing all that dumb shit about being psychic. All I know is George Clooney is, is using mind control on goats. Yeah, Well, he tries to. I don't think I... it succeeds. In my mind, he succeeds. Uh, as for the cast, we got Don Hill Gleason. He's one of the Weasleys in Harry Potter. You Is would, he? You would know more about that than me. Oh, maybe he's Charlie. Well, I'm asking like I don't, didn't look at the wiki page earlier. It's Bill Weasley. Uh, I don't know which one. Is that's that that's the, the oldest brother. The oldest brother? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's there's Ron, there's the twins, then there's Charlie, and there's Bill. Bill's the oldest. I think, I don't want to get it mixed up, Uh Bill may be the dragon tamer, dragon studier. Yeah, as hell, bro. <laughs> All right, well, whatever. Uh, it also stars Maggie Gyllenhaal and Michael Fassbender as the titular Frank. Are you a Fassbender fan? Do you have a favorite? No, I don't have a favorite. I think, but I think he does a good job in this movie. Yeah, I think my favorite Fassbender role is a Hunger, where he's this IRA prisoner that goes on a hunger strike in prison. Uh, wasn't he in one of the Star Treks? Uh. No, he's in the newer X-Men movies as Magneto. Is that what you're thinking of? No, nah, I thought he played some kind of weird emotionless person in some movie. You're thinking of him in uh, Prometheus. He plays the android. That's right. I'm thinking about Prometheus. Yeah, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, where he plays two different androids. But, uh, yeah, I like him in that role. Mm-hmm. I think he does a good job. The budget for this one was $1 million, and at the box office it claimed $1.9 Bigger margin than Bubby, but... Still pretty modest, but it is an indie film. It was shot mostly in Dublin and uh, partially in New Mexico. I will say it's far more aesthetically pleasing than Bubby. Yeah, it kind of has the twee early 2000s indie film aesthetic, but it's not quite as obnoxious as I find those films. I personally really don't like Wes Anderson, but I know I'm the outlier on that. Well, you can tell the Frank has a almost like a bipolar characteristic to it. Um, there's the manic coloration of, of several of the scenes that's tempered by this depressive dark, uh, a lot of the time in the cabin scenes where there's not a whole lot of color being shown on, on screen. And so you do kind of have this changing in the, in the aesthetic based off the mood of the people in the scene. Mm -hmm. And I think that's done very well. 
the film is told from the perspective of John Burroughs, played by Dom Hill Gleason, who becomes the keyboarder in a experimental uh, power pop group is probably how I would describe it best. But being told from his perspective, we see that he's a very middling kind of bullshit person. He interacts through the entirety of the world with Twitter, even though he has 14 followers. So he's just sending his rise and grind tweets into the void, hoping for some kind of recognition, as opposed to the rest of the band who are very unconcerned with popularity or making anything. It's all about the art to them. It's about the work that they do. And he very much does not fit that. Yeah, which is a good way to look at at Bubby. Yeah, you know, he's the opposite of Bubby. It's the artistic nature of creation versus the likability factor of creation. And and you're right. He the opening scene is you've got he's writing these like faux Beatles songs in his head and they're all garbage as hell. Yeah, you got John kind of walking around town going, "Look at the lady walking by." Lady in the red coat. Do you know the lady in the blue coat? You know, where's she going? Where's she coming from? Oh, there's somebody driving a car. Like, it's just, I see something, I sing about it. It's a very shallow way to write. There's nothing, there's no depth to what he's doing. He's just trying to find words to put in an order that he can put music to that he thinks will sound good. It's all very surface level for him. It's the aesthetic of being a working, successful musician. And he encounters the band when he's strolling the beach one day and notices a man trying to drown himself in the ocean with a police trying to pull him out. This man trying to drown himself is Lucas, the former keyboardist for... I'm not going to try to pronounce the band's name because it's nonsense. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think any... There's the scene in the movie where where he... uh, John asked the band uh, there at South by Southwest, spoiler Mm -hmm. alert, and John is asked what the name of the band is, and then John looks back at the rest of the band, because he's been in this band the whole time and never bothered to learn what their name is. Yeah, at that point, he's been with the band for about a year. It's kind of indicative of his his approach to this, but... He turns back to the band. And he's like, oh, well, how do we pronounce the name? And they're just like, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's more of a vibe than a name, man. Well, and again, for a band that never intended to be successful, the name didn't really matter. So while he's watching this man trying to drown himself in the ocean, he's having a conversation with what he thinks is just another onlooker, but ends up being the band's manager. And he's like, yeah, that's our keyboarder. I guess we can't play tonight. And he's like, well, I, I play keyboard. And he you know, kind of pauses him, goes and talks to an unseen figure in the van and returns and says, can you play F, G, and C? And he's like, well, yeah, sure, of course. All right, you're in. And that's how he joins the band. And you can tell that this is... John's character really wants, really wants to be in a band and be good at music. This and he wants the, to be respected, mostly. This so. is the opportunity he's been looking for to make a break. He's never heard this band before. He just assumes, oh, this is this must be what cool people do is try to drown themselves in the ocean. Well, and I think he's he's really thinking, oh, they've got a gig. If I can play it, I can show them I'm good and then they'll listen to my songs and I'll be good. And the gig goes well for him. Basically, he's capable of playing F, G, and C in a way that's not upsetting to the band, but they still feel cold towards him. It's like, oh, yeah, this is just a fucking hired gun for right now, but we're going to record an album. I guess he's coming with us. Well, it goes well for him in the sense of Frank thinks that he's, uh, what's what's the word, um, cherishable? He brings cherishable, something cherishable. Yes. That's how he describes him as cherishable. But meanwhile... 
uh, Clara, who's Maggie Gyllenhaal, right, yeah. flips over her theremin. The guitarists like walk off stage. It's it's th- a disaster of a show. I think a piece of equipment starts sparking out of nowhere. Yeah, I think that's the theremin. Yeah. Cause she like I, I don't I don't think she ever plays anything other than a theremin. She plays like a little Moog synthesizer too. Okay. Yeah. Well, part of her setup starts sparking and catches on fire. She kicks it over, mm-hmm. and then everybody storms off stage. And that's the Frank just kind of looks at him, and that's the end of the performance. I think he even asks him on stage, "Hill, who are you?" Oh yeah, new guy. A little bit of time skips, and they're going to record their album remotely. Uh, John assumes that you know he's going to be able to bang this out in a weekend he tells work that he's only going to take off till monday but it turns out no we're here till it's done and it ends up taking 11 months so it takes i think it takes longer than 11 months okay they so they're in the they're in this cabin for at least a a month or so they run out of rent money but i think it's it's, it's John's inheritance from his grandfather that keeps him going. Well, it's the first way he's really able to contribute. So that's that that happens after. Oh, okay. So the family shows up oh, to kick yes. them out, and John goes one to prove make everybody like him. Says I've got a bit of a nest egg, which kind of draws back to the fact that John's just a guy who has enough money to do all right. Mm-hmm. He has a job, and he's just he just wants to be a popular musician. That's all he, has he really that wants. Nest egg, but he lives at home. Yeah. Kind of this privileged musician, as opposed to what these people are, which is a bunch Freaks. of you know vagrants who are traveling around yeah. making music that no one likes mm-hmm. except for themselves. And so John says, "All right." I've got a nest egg. I'll keep us afloat. And in that scene, we see a Frank charm, the family that's supposed to be taking over the cabin. So it gives kind of a glimpse into like his ability to deal with people. And and that's right. I mean, again, and this may is, I guess hasn't really been said yet. Uh, Frank is wearing a giant fake head. It's over giant, his own head. Yeah, paper mache head modeled after Frank's side bottom, which is a British character. To me, it reminded me of a big boy, the big boy burger, that mo- uh, mascot. Yeah, I, I, think that, overalls. I think that's fair. It's a very similar face. Mm-hmm. So when when Frank is out with the, he, he goes outside with the German woman who shows up with the family, the mother. Speaks fluent German, by the way. He, he does. He, he's a very enig- enigmatic character, for mm-hmm. sure. So he goes outside with the mom and they're talking as they walk down the gravel driveway. And then next thing you know, they're swinging around and dancing with their arms out. And he's just completely charmed over this woman. So they just they just leave happy as can be. And then we have 11 months of zero progress. That's when we get an update from John where he says it's been 11 months I've given them all of this money. I'm almost out of my nest egg. We're having to ration food and they won't play my music. So there's a little bit, we can talk about that 11 months because I think there's some uh, yeah. developmental in, things that take place. In there, he starts to grow a relationship both with Frank and the manager, Don. And Don gives us a little more insight into Frank's past and how they both met in an insane asylum. Frank back then was still wearing the paper shade mask and he recounts a 300 pound nurse struggling to wrestle it off of him. Yeah, and you know, funny enough, Don's very forthcoming with being in an insane asylum. That ha- cause yeah, he, he, he likes to have sex with mannequins. He brings that up. He brings up being in an insane asylum after, I think, the first show. Mm-hmm. Or when they first pick him back up. He might have like even that. mentioned it when Lucas is trying to drown himself in the ocean. Like, ah, we all been there. So, and, 
And it's important to note that Lucas is the former keyboard player. Yes. Um, because that's a reoccurring theme. Well, we later find out that Don was the original keyboard player, and then he takes the role of manager and puts it on to someone else. It might have been that he was having more suicidal ideations as the keyboardist, so he took on a different role. There, there's clearly something about the keyboardist in this group always trying to... Something's going on with keyboards. We don't know what it is. Yeah. But anywho, we have we have the revelations of... A lot of the members of the group being in, well, we, we know for sure two members of the group were in a sane asylum at some point. Mm-hmm. Clara is not, at least that's not, she she says she's never been. But she is very violent and sociopathic. Yes. Probably should be. Very impulsive, threatens to stab people, actually stabs yeah, John. Pulls through on those threats. Uh, the other two are French. Yeah. Uh, and... Barack and uh, I forget the female drummer's name, but they're French. They don't have much dialogue, and when they do, it's you know subtitled. And their character development is minimal. They they seem to serve the purpose of backing Clara yeah. and ostracizing John. Uh, one of the more important things I think that comes with his conversations with Don, the manager, is that he warns John, "Don't try to be Frank. You can't be Frank. Frank can barely be Frank. I've been there myself." So that kind of implies that this horror streak with the keyboardists are people that grow to admire Frank too much and try to be him, but they don't realize being that person is self-destructive. Well, or your inability to be that person is self-destructive. In that same note, Dawn uh, walks in at, at, prior to them leaving the cabin. Dawn walks in to... Uh, I guess it's the RV where John's playing get uh, his keyboard, mm-hmm. and he's like, "What are you doing?" And and John's like, "I'm writing music, and it sucks." And Don relates to him and says, "Look, I was a key, you know, I'm a keyboardist. Yeah. I wrote music. It sucked. Here, let me play it for you." And he sings a song that is very good. Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy the song, and it's about his relationship with mannequins, but it's told in a very mature, like, sad way. You know it. And then Don says, oh, my music is trash. It sucks. And John says, no, look, it, it, it's very good. And John may be saying that either because he thinks it's good or he's trying to win popularity. J- it's hard to know for sure with John. I think John's being sincere because in comparison to the shit that he writes, what Don wrote is pretty good, but it's nothing compared to what Frank does. And that's the maddening part of being in a you know, band relationship with them. Well, and if you're John and you hear somebody play music way better than you, ah, that's and nothing. Then, yeah. And then you go, no, my music is shit. Yeah. And he, he John, big dogs them. That's, that's like a really fun way to big dog people. If you play an instrument. And then Johnson, they're oh, going, Johnson, they're going, man, I, I would love to, to make music that someone else might enjoy. And this guy's just passing his off. Like it's nothing. Just noodling it. And saying, I'll never be like Frank, which, a little bit later on, when we see John finally play for Frank. Yeah, and Frank is very warm and open with him, and it seems like all he had to do was, you know, approach him in the first place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that Frank, for all of his um, his shroud of mystery, mm-hmm. is approachable. The fact that he hides behind a, a fake head makes him a little bit more authentic in some regard, mm-hmm. because he doesn't feel like he has to be someone other than whoever Frank is. And he's willing to go out of his way to be even more approachable by announcing his facial expressions to John as he's talking to him. He's like, welcoming smile. Well, and part of that may seem to be, again, Frank's desire to be liked. 
which in part comes out in finding out that they have views, uh, even if they're not very many. Yeah. Um, you know, Frank Frank has a desire to be liked. And I think he's a little bit of a shapeshifter depending on who he's around and what they want from him. Yeah, I think throughout the movie, it's John's lust for fame kind of corrupts Frank. And just that Frank's the nice enough guy that he'll go along with what his bandmates are saying, even though he's holding the reins. Well, and not to jump too far ahead on this, mm-hmm. but I think that in that regard, John, you're right. John is trying to push Frank into celebrity and stardom because that's what John wants. He assumes this band wants to be famous. Because that's now, what he wants. Now, if you listen to the band and their performance or their practices and what they're doing it's entirely artistic again it's a lot like dewey cox where at one point he says we need an army of didgeridoos mm-hmm. fifty thousand didgeridoos <laughs> nobody wants to hear that yeah but he's caught up in trying to make something perfect they're really out there just trying to make whatever they're making it's not perfect. the product it's the process like, it's the work of making art not the art itself that you know can be commodified and it's absurd. They're making music with bendy straws and rappers. Yeah. And they're the first any- several months are just field recordings, which is them recording doors opening and shutting, scratching, like you said, pulling on bendy straws. It, it's, it's entirely just free form, avant garde. We're just making music. And so John should be picking up on the fact that they're not in really interested in mainstream success but he doesn't he thinks he can shape it and so he also kind of shares the romantic idea of the bizarre tortured artist and he tries to lean into that even though he himself has come from a privileged life and can't really put himself there the way the other band members can yeah and i I agree with that and so ultimately what ends up happening is he pushes he, he even pushes. Re- yeah. He even refers to the recording process as like, oh, this is my mental asylum. This is my version of that struggle. And it's like, well, no, you're here voluntarily trying to make something that you claim to love. And so and ultimately what he does is he pushes Frank this whole way to stardom. And what you see is Frank initially wants to be liked. He wants people to enjoy his music. When he gets to South by Southwest, he has a breakdown. He can't interact with people on that scale. We're coming full circle to why does he have this big head on after everything falls apart. We learn that he's had this head on since he was a little kid and he's just never taken it off and he hides his face in pictures for whatever reason. Frank does not want to be acknowledged or seen by a lot of people, which explains why it's like he needs that buffer. He can't face people directly. Well, even when he, he loses, even when he has the buffer, the sheer magnitude of the possibility mm-hmm. of thousands of people watching him perform, he really cracks under that pressure. Yeah. And what you end up realizing is what Frank ends up realizing is he, that's not what he's for. He gets back with, you know, he's with his band at the end. They're in this little buffet, the El Madrid saloon. Yeah. And so then he's making music again with his, his classmates. John realizes that he's a destructive force that ruins everything and the best thing he can do is leave right and so then they're just back to making their really unapproachable nonsensical music that they enjoy and that's it for them that's good for them and this whole story for frank is he wants to be liked but he realizes you know ultimately that it's better to be loved by this small group of people right. that understand him right. as much as you can understand frank and, 
and I think there, there's a lot to unpack in all that, but I really think that ends up being the overarching theme of this mm-hmm. is John's drive for success. Corrupting. It, That's it, how it, I view it, it as corruption and of it, their vision. It breaks apart everything that he originally enjoyed about the group. He drives everybody away. He destroys Frank, who he becomes to, he starts to idolize and want to be just like, he wants to be just like Frank. Uh, he envies Frank's ability to create music, uh, but he also has a sense of entitlement that pops up throughout the, the film, especially after he starts donating his nest egg. Yeah, well, understandably so, but that's kind of what happens when you give creatives money. You really can't expect a whole lot in return. Well, and, and they did, you know, they did trample over his idea. He starts to play a song. Mm-hmm. Frank says, wow, that's really good. And Frank, in a purely, I think, genuine fashion, did enjoy what John yeah. had did. And he starts and then, to modify his little piano riff. And then Clara comes in and is like, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, don't do that one note, though. You'd be really fucking stupid to do that note. And it's one of them, you know. And, and then when they're done modifying John's song, it doesn't resemble John's song at all. No. And but that's so, collaboration. I don't think he's mature enough to understand that. No, John wants to be famous and he wants his music to be what makes them famous. And throughout the recording session of the album, he's secretly uploading clips to Twitter and YouTube without the bands knowing. And that's how they initially get the South by Southwest invitation. But before they're done recording the album, there's a very pivotal moment in the film where we see what appears to be Frank hanging from a tree. They cut the body down. They're trying to get the rope off of his neck. And then Frank walks up from somewhere else. It turns out Don has donned a Frank mask and killed himself. And and again, the that harkens back to when Don was saying, look, I wanted to be just like Frank. Don't try to do that. You'll and, go crazy. And so Don does that. He dons the Frank mask and kills himself because he'd rather die as Frank than live as Don. And again. That should have been the big wake-up moment for John, but he looks past it. So at this point, John's sitting there, and he's looking at it going, well, when I first got introduced to the band, the keyboardist was trying to commit suicide. Now... I've just learned that Don was the original keyboardist, and he just committed suicide. Because he wanted to be frank. And John should recognize the fact that his trajectory is almost identical in that he really wants to be Frank, he's envious of Frank, and he's the keyboardist. And even though he hasn't been through trauma like Don or presumably Lucas has, he's also not made of the same stock as them, so it would probably take less for him to break. Well, and he does experience a fair bit of trauma in this, uh, you know, between getting hit by a car, Mm. being embarrassed on stage, getting notoriety without fame. Uh, he becomes infamous as the uh, chinchilla guy. It's a safe word that comes up when they're yeah, they, getting uh, have, a little too aggressive in their they artistic have a, endeavors. Yeah, they work combat exercises into their recording process, and chinchilla is their safe word. So, you know, when Claire ultimately stabs John in the leg and he Which says... Which she warned him about. She did. And he says, chinchilla, chinchilla. chinchilla. It goes viral. And then he's... He's notorious for being the chinchilla guy, and nothing that he produces gets the same uh, love and adoration. And so he gets what he wants, but in a Faustian twist, it's notoriety and not fame. The rock star becomes a law cow. Right, right. And so uh, where kind of full circle is, I mean, that's his trauma. I mean, that's what he experiences. Is realizing that he's a fake. He's a fake. And if Frank hadn't ran away... 
when John pushed him too hard and tried to rip his head off. He may have ended up in the same place as Don or Keith, but he didn't get the opportunity. He broke the group apart mm-hmm. and then realizes, oh, now I have to try to fix it. And he does do a, He does track everybody down, mm-hmm. to his credit. He does. I, it's left unclear whether or not he brought Frank to the El Madrid salon, but it seems that way since they're both there, and then he leaves halfway through the performance to leave the band as they should be. So I think it's safe to assume he brought Frank there because the what happens is John goes to Frank's hometown, El Madrid, Bluff, Kansas, sees the band then learns where Frank is. He goes on a tour, posting on Twitter. Right. Everyone yeah. mocks him, saying the joke's over. You know, yeah. he quit trying to get, tr- quit trying to milk publicity. Hashtag find Frank, and someone tweets about, he's in my asshole, do I get a prize? And, you know, he gets a bunch of loose ends and goes places. Ultimately, somebody tweets about him being in his hometown of Bluff, Bluff Kansas. Right. And that, which, uh, Don mentions earlier being his home. That's right. So he thinks this this has got some credibility. He goes, he approaches the first person he sees who just happens to be the landscaping awkward. man yeah. who's like, I don't know why you're talking to me. I just cut trees. And then he goes inside, learns a little bit about Frank's history. And then he... The whole time Frank is there without his mask and he's nonverbal. He won't interact with anyone. He's like playing with a radio... Mm-hmm. making static and then he plays on the keyboard some we learned that frank put this mask on when he was 14 when right when he was a kid and his dad made it for him and said that was one of the biggest mistakes he made he thought it would yeah he said help. it was for a halloween party and his father said i knew there was no halloween party because he didn't have friends and so he thought that there was you know that this would go away if he fed into it and it never went away you see around the house that there's pictures of frank where He's got like a baseball glove up over his face. He does not want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you see Frank. He's, you know, he's standing there. He's got scars around his head from where he's worn a mask yeah. for presumably 20, 30, probably yeah. 20-ish years. Yeah, he's got like balding patterns from where it's set on his scalp. He's also got like red scarring yeah. around his forehead. I don't know if that's something from the mental hospital or if it's like the recent car accident he was in because he also gets hit by a car when his you know paper mache head gets destroyed. I assume that that's the fastener for the hat for his, his yeah. mask. It's on Go, there pretty cause, good because it goes all the way around his head. He wears it in the shower. He yeah. doesn't take it off to eat. So he's worn it, what is it, presumably 24-7 or some iteration of a mask since he was 14. And I like how he has an XLR cable that dangles at the bottom of it. And that's how he does vocals. He just like plugs his mask into the uh, microphone cable. Yeah, I, I mean, it's well thought out and mm-hmm. it's patched. And so he's had it for a while. But we see that Frank starts playing music and John in just true John fashion says, well, it's good to see you're still, you're making music again. And Frank goes, I'm not, it's trash. And he just like, he's banging stuff out on the keyboard, still better than anything John's ever done. Um, and then, then we cut to yeah. El Madrid and he's there with. One more thing I want to say about his parents is that they make the very point that I think we've both been talking about since we brought the film up is that, Frank's trauma didn't make him a great artist. He was always a great musician. If anything, right. it got in the way. So Joe or Joe, John has also been sort of romanticizing Frank's mental illness, being like, "Oh, that's where all the juice comes from." But no, it's a hindrance, and that's something that's always kind of bothered me is the idea of the tortured artist. It's like, no, take some Prozac and you'll focus a little better. Well, 
or you know like that's a common thing with artists from any field is like oh if i get mental help then i'm not going to be as creative and that's just not true i mean i once knew a guy who wanted to develop an alcohol dependency because that's what rock stars have and he wanted to be a rock star you see that with writers a lot it's like oh i guess i gotta be an alcoholic now it's a real tail wagging the dog kind of situation on that but Mm -hmm. in this instance you know we we come full circle at the very end where they realize they don't even need a keyboardist. You know, they're up there, theremin, um, Moog, Moog, guitar, and bass. No, yeah. No, there's no bass. I thought that the French guy played bass. No, he plays guitar. Gotcha. Anyway, so you've got guitar, drums, you've got Moog and theremin, and then you kind of see Frank walk back into his true self Without his helmet on, without his mask, he starts doing his freeform thought, and it's, it's rocky at first. Mm-hmm. It's not very good. Fat but it, fuck smoked out sequenced mountain ladies. You got that down right. That's a good song. I legitimately like the ending song. Yeah, uh, no, it. I it, love your wall. It starts out really, really rough, but they transition it in, and then you know John leaves realizing, oh well. I ruined the actual artistic value of anything they're producing by trying to commercialize it mm-hmm. before there was any chance of success. This is something beautiful that needs to be left alone to flourish. And it may be at that point that John ultimately redeems himself because he gets out of the way. He has enough uh, self-awareness to say, oh, wait, I'm, I broke it all. I don't need to be a part of it. I'm a bad musician. And a bad person, really. Uh, he gets caught up trying to chase success. I don't know if he's bad or he's just shallow. I mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair to characterize him as a bad person. In much the same way, it's not really fair to characterize Bubby as a bad person. Mm-hmm. Do you think Bubby's more analogous to John or Frank? So Bubby is, is definitely more analogous to Frank. They're both what, mentally ill and incredibly talented in music for whatever reason, without effort seemingly. But the big distinction between the two comes full circle to nature versus nurture. Uh, yeah. Bubby is absolutely, well, presumably The product of isolation. Yeah. His mother created him. There's no indication in the film that he suffers from any kind of illness other than being isolated and Abused. controlled by yeah. his mother. Then in the in the case of Frank, he has a loving family and mental illness is something that just happened to him and you know they try to get treatment. You know, that's something where that's nature taking effect. It seems that he's had this issue from being a child and there's no indication that anything happened to him that caused it. And like Bubby, they both have a lack of agency, I feel. They're being used by the people around them for what they can create. Well, you know, in some regard, Clara being absolutely crazy and the French couple mm-hmm. being... Apathetic. They're there to make music with Bubby. Clara, and I think John calls it accurately in the hot tub scene um, when he says Clara's in love with Frank. I think Clara mm-hmm. is in love with this idea of Frank. She wants to protect him at all costs. That's why she stabs John, because she's trying to... She's, she ultimately sabotages, I think, most of what they do. In an I was attempt- talking about John mostly using Frank. Oh, yeah, okay. I thought you meant his band. Yeah, John's absolutely using Frank. In the same way that the band is using Bubby. Right, yeah. And, well, everyone kind of uses Bubby like that. You know. Well, and Bubby seems to enjoy it. Yeah, or he doesn't really have any perspective on that he's being used. Well, he keeps... Well, but he keeps doing it. So, in yeah. the very least... 
if they're using him, it's in a way where he doesn't realize he's being used. And it's almost just a mutual relationship in which he gets to express himself in a way he's never been able to. And for him, it's a positive and where Frank, it becomes a negative, the exposure. Right. I mean, they're, they're driving, John drives Frank into the ground mm-hmm. and completely breaks Frank Whereas, uh, to the, to the literal extent of gets him hit by a car yeah. so that his head shatters and the fake then, head, the fake head. And he runs away. Mm-hmm. And then John gets hit by a car, which is just dessert. And he ends up in the hospital for what is presumably a pretty significant amount of time. Best part of the movie. It is satisfying. Um, but when we talk about nature versus nurture, there's also a middle ground. Um, and it's the, uh, the Netflix, Netflix's Dahmer. Oh, is that the middle ground? Where they bring the dad in and they go, well, your son's doing all sorts of weird stuff. And he goes, ah, it's because he got dental surgery when he was four. That's because we got divorced when he was 18. <laughs> you know, he was never right again after he got put under for his dental surgery mm. at four years old. And it's like, that's the story you're going to go with. Oh, is but, it my fault because I did taxidermy with him? A hobby that many fathers and sons do? I, well... It's usually not roadkill. His taxidermy started with like murdering an animal nearby. The the possum. It starts with the possum under the house and he starts playing with it. Yeah, he asked him what happened to it. And he's like, well, let's find out. Then, you know, in in kind of full circle with everything we've talked about in the Dahmer show, when he starts to pull the body under the crawl space of the house, it's just like when Frank's or when uh, Bubby starts doing everything that he's seen someone do. So he's parroting what he saw earlier. He saw hmm. possums going to the house, and Dahmer's like, oh, I'm going to put a body under the house. It's a good place for it. Yeah, that's Despite the it. fact that he knew the, the only reason they knew the possum was there was that it was stinking. It's like he didn't think a body was going to stink. This isn't true of the Dahmer series, but one thing that really annoys me in true crime, and I think this is an aspect of true crime that takes on copaganda, is whenever they invent the archetype of the genius serial killer, which is mostly fiction. You have Zodiac and btk to an extent but most serial killers are operating at about a 70 iq and it's just bad policing well not only is it bad policing but it's like hannibal Lecter. just is that's not a person well and 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 i think you see with a lot of the serial killers that they have some form of mental illness that is a hindrance to what they would act like if they were operating on all eight cylinders they wouldn't do the things that they did but that being said when you've got somebody like Dahmer or Gacy or anybody they're operating at a time when there's not mass social media mm-hmm. the 24-hour news cycle is less of a thing and you know you don't have it was pretty common for people to just go missing and they go oh well I guess they left the county yeah. we'll never see them again oh well and there was just no follow-up people mm-hmm. went missing a couple people knew about it nobody cared there wasn't mass, you know, it, to the extent there is today. I, I think you'd have a harder time having someone with characteristic killings get away with it for as long uh, today because it would be so documented on social media and everywhere else. Now, I think there are, what, like 30 serial killers at any given time operating in the United States. I think that's the FBI stat. But, you know, they're not... I don't think they're, like, cutting out eyeballs and sending letters to the newspaper. No, I'd say it's usually you hire a sex worker and then don't pay and then snuff her out and leave and then no one looks into it. In fact, the serial killers we know about are probably the dumbest ones Mm. because they managed to get caught when so many other people didn't. It's funny to say because it's intentionally a very silly podcast, but I always felt like last podcast on the left did a good 
job of riding the line between not doing copaganda and not doing like death worship of the serial killer because those are like the two pits that you fall into with true crime it's a very tight rope you gotta walk and i get all my true crime news from last podcast on the left there you go all right uh any more final thoughts on frank you know i ultimately with frank I think it's... You found it more enjoyable than Bubby. I absolutely found it more enjoyable than Bubby. I, I Again, it's not a movie I would want to watch. Um, I think it was more um, accessible than Bubby, mm-hmm. probably because there's a lot less uh, <laughs> incest and sexual assaults and murders. But that being said, it's artistically... It's aesthetically more pleasing. It's lighter in its subject matter and it kind of has a faster pace when i'm watching bubby i'm sitting there dissecting what's going on trying to figure it out and you kind of have you can't really pace the plot of bubby because there isn't really a plot to bubby right and you're looking at basically sagas of bubby's life and it's just solely dictated on what's happening to bubby at the time with frank you're really looking at one major saga and it's self-contained self-contained the story right and so you're looking at this one saga and you have to finish it and then look back to see what's going on so you get to do less analyzing during the movie because there's you haven't put a ribbon on it yet with bubby it's it's compartmentalized Mm -hmm. every single thing is different every single thing is about this happening then this happening then this and frank is just a Frank has a first, second, and third act. It's a traditional story. And it's smooth, and it works well. Not my favorite movie. Would definitely watch it before again before I would watch Bubby again. Um, You know, it's fine. I find them both enjoyable. I don't know that I really like one more than the other, even though I selected the two for connecting themes. I still find them to be wildly different films. Uh, I do agree that Frank is more watchable. It's definitely something you could put on when you have someone over as opposed to if you just throw on Bubby when you got company it it could cause some tension I think well and, and they do the I think they do the same thing ultimately they address the fetishization of mental, mental illness. illness in a way where it's one the crowd is looking at Bubby and they're loving every second of it they should be able to tell that something's not right about that and in this, it's almost John's personal, all the keyboard is personal obsession with Frank's mental illness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they do the same thing uh, differently. I think Bubby is probably the better of the two films. Frank is more enjoyable. I think I can agree with that. All right. Well, do you want to wrap it there? That works for me. All right. This has been uh, The Snob and the Simp Presents. Uh, I've been Matt. And I've been Michael. All right, we'll see you next time. It's like you're trying to remember, but it's gotten in you. Trying to scream, but it only comes out as a young when you're trying to see the one beyond you.